Good morning. Morning. Let's begin class of prayer. Father in heaven, again, we are so thankful that you are our Father, and we are so thankful for the way you run your universe in truth, love, freedom, and that you sent Christ to bring us the truth and provide us a healing remedy to restore us into uh, the original design of love for you and love for others. And we just pray your Spirit will enlighten us, draw us close to you, uh, give us discernment, give us the ability to be effective in this world, to, to lighten the world for your return. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing Lesson 12 in the Quarterly uh, Education, and the title is Sabbath, Experiencing and Living the Character of God. What do you think of that title? I thought that was a great title. Yeah. Sabbath, Experiencing and Living the Character of God. So, first question, obviously, what does the Sabbath tell us or tell you about the character of God? Does the law lens... One has, as one considers the Sabbath, have any impact on how we understand the character of God? Yes. So, for instance, did the Pharisees in Christ's day have the wrong day of the week that they were keeping a Sabbath? Or did they have the right day as the Sabbath? Yes or no? Right day, wrong day? Right day. Therefore, they recognized Jesus as God and Lord of the Sabbath, right? Wait, they didn't recognize him. Uh, Why could they not recognize the character of God as revealed in Christ if they had the Sabbath? Hmm. So there's some lessons we must learn from this, right? There's some important lessons we should learn from this. Having the right Sabbath does not mean one has, as Wendell says, the right God. You can have the right Sabbath and the wrong God. And that's what they had, the right Sabbath, the wrong God. If one has the right Sabbath but the wrong understanding of the law, as in God's law functions like human law, a system of rules that are made up that he must enforce with punishment, then one will have the wrong God. So God's laws, if we have God's laws as design law, and the law of worship is one of those, by beholding we are changed. We actually become like the God we admire and esteem. And thus, if we have a God whose law works like our law, a system of rules that requires him to adjudicate it and then inflict punishments for, then we become like that God, and we become dictatorial, authoritarian, and willing to punish others like the Pharisees in Christ's day who killed the Lord, Lord of the Sabbath so they could run home and keep the Sabbath. Isn't that what happened? So back to the question. What does the Sabbath tell us about God's character? And I'll even add this. And how does it help us grow to be more like God in our character? It first starts with design law. I'm just going to tell you. It starts. Everything starts. Do you understand God as creator? Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. And understand his laws are the laws upon which reality are built. That is the key to it all. Which, when you understand that, it's always rooted in his character of love. His laws are always evidences of his character of love. And so his... The big three elements or design law principles upon which his universe is constructed to operate are love, truth, and liberty. Liberty or freedom. That's right. They're the big three. And so we want to look at each one of those three and ask the question, what does the Sabbath have to say or to reveal to us about first God's love? And then we're going to go truth and then we're going to go freedom or liberty. So what is the Sabbath? Well, first off, The Sabbath is a gift. Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man. It's a gift. And we give gifts to people we love. So the fact that it's a gift from God to us is an evidence of God's love for us. But but you have to ask, what kind of gift is this? I mean... If it is viewed as the Pharisees did, as many, I will just be honest with you, as many Seventh-day Adventists that I've known view it, an imposed rule, a law, operating like human law, if it's viewed through the human law lens, imposed law, what kind of a gift is that? A law we have to keep, a rule we have to obey, a restriction to our freedom. One day out of every seven when you can't do this, you can't do that, but hey, it's a gift. 
Think about giving a gift like that to somebody for Christmas. Every seven days, you're required to come visit me for the rest of your life. It's a gift to you. On the penalty of death. On the penalty of death. On the penalty of death. Because I love you. You're laughing. But do you understand that's how the Sabbath is presented to a lot of people? It's a gift of a rule that you must obey or you'll be punished. It's ridiculous. And you have to use it in a certain way all the time. Or ways. We'll unpack this some more. No, this is good. Can love be commanded? No. Then if the Sabbath reveals God's love, is it some rule we're required to obey if it reveals God's love? It's not a rule that we're required. It can't be. It has to be something else. Do you see that if we present the Sabbath to people as a rule that we must obey, through the imposed law lens, we are immediately misrepresenting God's character. That's what we're doing. So how is it a gift to us? And, and we would be unpacking that element through the whole lesson. You'll be seeing more and more and more layers to this gift. But any thoughts as an opening salvo on how it's a gift to us? Understand the Sabbath is in some way, some aspect of reality that the Creator built into time itself, into our experience, our existence, that is intended to benefit us in some way. Put that out there. The Creator built reality, He built space, He built time, and He built the Sabbath as a gift to us. It's constructed into reality as a benefit to us in some way. So, do you see, as I put it in those terms, does it take your mind out of a rule to start contemplating, okay, how does that work? How does that happen? What what is the reality elements of this that, that are beneficial to us if we appreciate and experience it? Example. A uh, company for its employees could build a gymnasium that they are free to use. It's for their, it's a gift to the employees that they can come anytime they want, that they're not at work and they can use all the exercise equipment there built for them. Do they have to use it? Do they have to go? Is it a requirement? If they don't use it, will the employer seek them out to kill them for it? No. Do they lose something, though, if they don't, in in our metaphor, use, and thus they don't exercise? Of course, they could exercise somewhere else, but but in our metaphor, it's, it's a limited metaphor. But you see the point, right? They lose something. Think that through in some way. How is it that the Sabbath, built by God, put into reality, all life passes through it every seven days? And it's a gift to bless us in some way. Keep that in mind as we go through. Evidence of God's love. It's a memorial of creation. And thus, as soon as you think about creation, what kind of law does creation operate upon? A system of rules or design law? Laws of health, laws of physics. It's design law. So immediately as a memorial of creation, it takes you back to the creator and his design laws, which are always evidences of love and other-centeredness, and we see all those circles of giving that all life is built upon in every aspect of nature. And so it reveals God's love to us. It's a memorial to that. It's a memorial of Christ's sacrifice on the cross to us as he accomplished his mission and then rested over the Sabbath hours. We reflect on not just how nature itself is built to operate on love, but God himself sacrificed himself for his creation. This is in direct opposition of imperialism. Understand, the kingdom and government of God is the kingdom in which the one equal to God did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but humbled himself into the form of a servant, coming all the way down and giving his life to lift us up. 
He reveals he would rather die than let his, than take freedom and liberty from his creatures. Love sacrifices self. So that isn't just built in as a structure for life. It is in the character and individuality of God himself. He is love. Revealed. Contrast that with Satan, who didn't, who wanted to rise up and, and sit on God's throne and rule over. We'll come back to that too. But then maybe this is where I got to that metaphor of the uh, gymnasium. It is a tool. The Sabbath is a tool, an aid, a resource, a time for us set apart to exercise our power of choice and trust God every seven days to reflect and choose to consider the evidence of what this existence of the Sabbath represents. If God is like Satan says, is there a Sabbath and so forth? The evidence is exercise, contemplate, apply, trust for the healing of our character. We'll unpack that as we go through. So lots of evidences of God's love. What about Sabbath as an evidence of truth? I've already mentioned some of these in the evidence of love because you can't really, God is love and truth, and, and the truth of his character of love is also truth, and, and his love is, so they are intermingled here, so this may sound somewhat repetitious, but it's a more memorial again of creation. It reminds us the truth of the creator and his laws. That's its truth. It's also evidence of love, but it's also evidence of truth. But in the context of when was the Sabbath made or created, what was happening in the universe? There was a war over who was the best arm wrestler. In other words, it wasn't a might and power war. Satan didn't declare he's more powerful than the creator. Never, never, never will you find an allegation for Satan. I have more physical might and power than God. Do you think he ever made that claim? That was never the claim. What was the claim? God has physical might and power and... It's not trustworthy. Unfit, untrustworthy. You can't trust him with it. He'll abuse you with it. That was the claim. And so what do we learn about God's use of power? Creation week of earth. Day one, let there be light. Day two, firmament. Day three, land. Uh, and day four, sun, moon, star. Day five, uh, the, the animals of, in the sea and sky. Day six, the animals of the earth and man. What are we learning about God on these first six days? Yeah, he's organized. He's organized, that's it. I know some very powerless individuals that are even um, paralyzed from the neck down that are quite organized. Is that, is that the lesson we're learning? I mean, he is organized, no question. It's not, it's not that it's not true, but is that what we're learning? He's organized. We, we certainly are seeing a, a planet that is teeming with his principles of love. Every, the whole ecosystem, we're learning something about that too. But to speak into existence things. My Power. Power beyond the imagination of created beings. It's power we can see if we were there. We could see it happening, but it's power beyond comprehension. Power beyond thundering at Sinai. You understand? Speaking reality, planets into existence is power beyond just making a mountain shake. Right? And at Sinai, what did the people do? They trembled in terror. Satan is a legend. You can't trust God. God speaks a new solar system and a new planet, a new life into existence. This is a power unbelievable. Beyond comprehension of angels. Angels can't really process this. They can't do that. Can angels speak things into existence? No. And so you could see the liar... A foot 
Guys, I told you, he's powerful. He's trying to intimidate you. He's trying to frighten you. Now, what happens if you become afraid of God? Do you love more or do you love less? And so God says, universe, you've seen, you've heard the allegations of the liar. You've seen evidence put out here this week. Now, universe, notice what God did. I rest my case. God created a time in which on that seventh day, he stopped using power. Not the power that constantly exudes or extends from him that sustains his entire universe. He's constantly sustaining. All life is derived from him. The, 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 the orbits of the planets continue to orbit because he sustains all the laws of the universe upon which they operate. But he stopped creating. He ceased the expenditure of new creation. And he stepped back and he said, Consider the evidence for yourself. No pressure, no coercion. Come to your own Reflect. Think it through. And what does it say about God that in a, in a circumstance in which he's being alleged to be untrustworthy, in which somebody's trying to dethrone him from his rulership, that rather than using power to pressure, to force, to make, he instead steps back and says, you're free. That's the Sabbath behind you. Back there, yeah. It seems to me that love without power is weakness. Don't you think so? Um, life without love power. without power is weakness. So you see Christ as a weak savior on the cross when he had love. He is powerful. No, 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 no. He didn't use any power at the cross. Other than I'm the, talking about uh, God created. So what did what did Paul say in Romans about the gospel? But he says in Romans, it is the the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the power of God. And, and Paul wrote in Corinthians, Second Corinthians it's like ten. Balance. No. Satan says uh, God is powerful, no question, but he is not trustworthy, implying that there is no love. But if you have power and you are love at the same time, it's balanced. But if you love without power, you basically weak. That's what I'm saying. Yes, and I'm going to suggest that that isn't the accurate picture. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, Paul says, For though we live in the world, we don't wage wars, the world does. War, wouldn't this be two sides using their powers against each other? When there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Was there powers involved here? What kind of power was being used? Was this a power of physical might? No, it was the polemic. It's the Greek polemic. It's the power of truth. So we live in the world. We don't, we don't wage war as the world does. How does the world wage war? Might. Might and power. The weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. Notice what we demolish with this weapons with divine power. We demolish arguments. Every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. So if our weapons are against arguments, pretensions, knowledge, and thoughts, what kind of weapons are these? These are the weapons of truth and love. When the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, did he come with, quote, power? Yes, he did. What kind of power? The power of truth and love, which changes hearts. Can you turn an enemy who hates you into a friend who will give his life to die for you by threatening to kill him if he doesn't? No. That's the power of human might, of coercion, of just strength. It will punish and hurt if you don't do what I say. But the bigger power is the power that transforms hearts. Now, we never suggest God doesn't have creative power. That was always a given. So in the great controversy, I think the point that you're trying to make is really a moot point because it's always been understood that God was powerful. The devils believe and tremble. 
It was never a question whether he actually had real power. Of course he has real power. The real question is, and it's about corrupting hearts, minds, and characters, his use of power, and is he trustworthy? Does he love us so much that at the cross he would let his creatures kill him rather than use his power to stop it? And understand the stopping of his execution at the cross, had he done so, would have been an act of judicial justice. He was an innocent. He was innocent. His execution was fraudulently attained based on perjury and lies. And to stop it would have been an act of judicial justice. But he would not exercise power to do so. Had he exercised power to do so, it would have been an act of selfishness. Saving self while restricting the liberties of others. This is how Satan is setting the world up right now, folks. Understand what's happening in this world right now is Satan is doing all types of fraudulent activity through his human agencies, just like to Christ. All that fraudulent stuff was being driven by Satan through human agencies to bring an unjust outcome, to incite a sense of outrage, to get the righteous to choose his methods. That's what's happening in the world right now, in in this country right now. We see all kinds of fraudulent activity going on, and the real temptation, Satan doesn't care whether a Democrat or Republican wins the White House. He does not care. He does care whether he can infect the hearts of the righteous with his methods. That's what he cares about. See it for what it is. And what, one of the temptations that's going on in this nation right now is to incite Christians with a sense of outrage so that they will either rise up and use his methods of hostility and aggression and violence or believe the only way they can win in the future is by practicing Satan's methods of fraud and deceit. Either way, they corrupt their character. That's the goal here. Rather than trusting God, as Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego did, with outcomes that seem impossible to the human mind. So we continue to present truth and love. We continue to present present our, our nation and circumstances to God and ask him to intervene like Daniel did with his agencies influencing the thought leaders and decision makers to tilt things in the direction that ultimately bring the outcome of Jesus coming back. kind of got off there when you brought me onto the power question because I was really talking about Sabbath and but I appreciate that I think it was a really good question I think I, I explained my point weekly basically what I was saying is if you're not questioning the power of God you're questioning his love if you're not questioning his love you're questioning his power I, I don't agree with that at all if you're not questioning both you're done as a savior I, 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 don't, I, just, I just disagree with that you have split the two, so let's split the two. It's not about preference, it's about connection. The great controversy is over God's character. Again, I've never seen it over whether he has power. It's understood and accepted he has power. It's only his use of power that's in question, not People whether he has it. People who reject Sabbath as a Saturday, they question the power of God. I've never seen that question. Behind this rejection. Okay, explain to me how the Sabbath issue is questioning his power. I'm not seeing that. Because uh, Sabbath as a Saturday is a proof that God is a creator of universe. Yes. So? So when you're questioning Sabbath as a Saturday, you're questioning the mightiness of God who created the universe. So that would be, I know many people who don't agree uh, or worship on Saturday that believe God is creator. It's not directly linked. Yes, the Sabbath. Uh, they, they believe not enough to, to respect Sabbath and Sabbath. I, I'm just not following the linkage. I'm just not following. We're going to move on. What does the Sabbath have to say about liberty and freedom? Again, we just explained the end of creation week. Leave you free to decide for yourself. What about when we experience restoration in a saving relationship with God, to holiness as God designs? Are we set free from fear, free from guilt, free from shame, free from condemnation? Are we set free, and ultimately free from the terminal sin condition? 
free from eternal death. When we experience salvation in Jesus, aren't we set free? Does the Sabbath have anything to say about our salvation? Well, of course it does. That's where real freedom is found. Hebrews chapter 4. We have rest from trying to save ourselves. We have rest in the Sabbath, which is a sign of the one who provided for our salvation. So do you see why Satan hates the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath, and thus he attacks it in various ways? And here's how he attacks it in various ways. One, he alleges there's no God, and if there's no God, there's no Sabbath. That's one allegation. You see that in society and all types of uh, philosophies around the world. Two, he makes the Sabbath the uh, biggest party day of the week. Friday nights and Saturdays, biggest party day of the week in the world, around the world. Uh, and, uh, and therefore people forget the meaning or the purpose of the Sabbath. It's a day just to have fun. And they forget the God of the Sabbath. He teaches that the Sabbath was changed to a different day. Thus, again, the purpose of what the Sabbath represents, what it was designed to reveal, and the evidence it brings, is lost in the idea that God's laws can be changed and abrogated. Okay? Uh, he gets people to accept the imposed law lie... And thus, even though they believe the truth about the weekly Sabbath, they teach it through the false law lens as an arbitrary test of obedience from an arbitrary and punishing God that rather than being a gift, it is a rule that you must keep. And if you're keeping the wrong day, this God will punish you for keeping the wrong day, like the Pharisees in Christ's day. Through the imposed law lie, the penal legal theologians argue back and forth which day is the day and why it should be kept and or what we're allowed to do or not allowed to do on the day and not and lose sight of the fact, guys, that the issue is not about which day is the Sabbath. The issue is about the Lord of the Sabbath. If you don't understand that issue, you very well may have the right day and crucify the Lord of the Sabbath and get him off the cross so you can keep the right day. It's not about the day. It's about the Lord of the day. Everybody get that? So another way he diminishes uh, the blessing or the gift of the Sabbath is to make it an end in itself, eclipsing the God of the Sabbath. Through the imposed law lie, the Sabbath is taught in ways that pervert God's character, and rather than teaching love, truth, and liberty, it now teaches that one, God is no longer love, but a schizophrenic God who is not only loving, but just, and will use his power to torture and kill those who, who, who don't obey the right day because justice requires that sin must be punished, and I've got to punish it. Or, God is the source of death rather than life, and God must kill the Sabbath breakers. Or, we don't really have freedom as God, as God will use power to force and coerce us by inflicting death on those who won't obey. So we're not really free. We're coerced. So if one has the right day of the week but teaches the Sabbath through the imposed law lens, then one will pervert everything about the purpose of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath will become a tool of Satan to harden hearts and corrupt character. Do you find that a tough pill to swallow? You can have the right day presented in a way that you're actually doing Satan's work with a gift that God gave us. If you think that's a hard pill to swallow, think of any gift you could receive from anybody that is a blessing for you. Oh, we could say God has given us fresh water to bless us with, and we should drink eight glasses a day. Can somebody drown another person in water? Can they abuse the gift and hurt others with it? Yes. That's Satan's goal, to have us take the gifts that God gives us and abuse them or distort them or pervert them in some way that we end up injuring ourselves and others with it. And when we present the Sabbath through a legal law lens that, that is simply a rule made up by a, a dictator, we have lost the blessing. To the point that the Sabbath is only a blessing and only teaches the truth about God when we first recover the truth of God's design law and understand his character of love. If we try to teach the Sabbath through the imposed law lens, 
we will misrepresent God and the Sabbath both. Not the day. We get the day right. We'll just get everything else about it wrong. Thoughts about that? All right, look at Sabbath's lesson. I'm going to read uh, the story in the lesson. Put your thinking caps on because I'm going to challenge you. Read the story. I'm going to challenge you. Jody was, uh, was the only Seventh-day Adventist in her graduate program, and her choice not to attend some social events on Sabbath made her beliefs very visible. One day, one of her friends, Gail, called her. Gail's husband was going to be out of town for six weeks, and she asked Jody if she wanted to spend the next six Friday nights with her because she knew Jody did nothing on those evenings anyway. For the next four Friday nights, they ate together, played music, shared their Christian experience, and generally enjoyed each other's company. The fifth weekend, Gail told Jody that she had been downtown shopping and looking and looked at her watch and said, Oh, good, she thought. Sabbath is very soon. She suddenly realized that over the four Friday nights that had exper- she, she had experienced something new in her Christian experience. She had grown, learned more about her God, and deepened her faith. Sabbath had been an opportunity for education and personal development. Let that just sit for a moment. Did you read that and go, amen, amen? No. Or did you read that and go, something's off. Something... Uh, did this story have a ring of truth to it? Or did some part of it, you go, wait a minute, something isn't quite right here. Did it feel like maybe, as a metaphor, two jigsaw puzzle pieces that in their own right were re- really good pieces, but we tried to force them together in a way they don't really fit? We're trying to make a connection that's not inherently there. An artificial conclusion, maybe. So consider this from the story. Jody had been off every Wednesday night and had been asked by her co-worker, whose husband was out of town for six weeks, to come over on Wednesday evenings. And they had dinner together and studied and played music and shared their Christian experience and grew closer as friends. What might happen on the fifth week when Gail was out shopping on Wednesday afternoon and looked at her watch and realized it was almost time for Jody to come over? Might she have said, oh good, Jody's coming over this evening. Might she have said that? Why did Gail have so much positive experience those four Friday evenings? Was it something magical about those hours, those minutes, those seconds that, 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 that began to occur once the sun went down? Or was it the love and friendship and truths that she experienced with Jody as they studied God's word together? A placebo effect. Let's be clear. I'm not undermining the weekly Sabbath. I'm not undermining the Sabbath. Or its sacredness. Or its gift from God to us. What I have a problem with is making connections that are not inherent in the Sabbath. We'll see this through the entire lesson. The The same process. Where they will try to make conclusions like this about the Sabbath that are actually not inherent in the Sabbath. And what happens is when you do that, the arguments for the Sabbath get diminished. People who don't already uh, value the Sabbath, when you make arguments like this, it actually ends up making it sound almost superstitious in some way. We'll come back to that with some other examples. For instance, go to Sunday's lesson. Uh, Oh, yes. How could you change that story so it would be correct? I just did. There isn't a reflection of the Sabbath in the story. That story was about a relationship that was built with two people who shared an ex- their experience and love for each other and studied God and came closer to God together, and that was a joy for them because that's the natural outcome, and it would have happened if, had they done that on any day of the week. Okay, They're trying to make it that this only happened because it was on the Sabbath. No, that's not true. You just need another story. Yes, there are many wonderful things about the Sabbath, but that story doesn't really apply to the Sabbath. The blessings that she was receiving, the joy she was getting was out of, you understand that that we get joy when we come into love, friendship with people. And we share with people. 
And we have time when people care about us. And, we, and then we grow. And the epiphanies in God's word that they were studying together were growing in her. It was great that it was on the Sabbath. That's beautiful. But it wasn't because it was on the Sabbath. It was because of the love and truth that was, they were growing in. It would have happened on any other day of the week. Okay. Sunday's lesson is entitled, Time to be Astonished. The Sabbath. A time to be astonished. And it is certainly true. That the Sabbath, as the lesson author says, quote, was a God-created time for Adam and Eve to focus on their creator and the created, unquote. No, no question, that's, that's true. But are humans restricted to focusing on God and creation the other six days of the week? It's only during the Sabbath hours that we can focus on God and creation and, and appreciate our creator. It's only during, so the Sabbath is special because it's time to do that. And the other days you're forbidden from doing it or, or obstructed in some way. Or can you focus on God as your creator and the beauty of creation and go closer to both all six, all seven days of the week? Again, this argument I don't find valuable. Even though it's true, it was made for this, it's not exclusive, it's not inherent. Another example that you will hear from some, well, it's a day where God spends with us, like he came and spent Sabbath with them, and so it's holy because God's presence is there with us on Sabbath. If you love the Sabbath and you love the Lord and you open your heart to the Lord, the Holy Spirit absolutely comes and dwells with you and you'll have a blessed Sabbath. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you read and eat the account of Genesis, God came and spent time with them in the cool of every day of the week. And if you open your heart to God and reach out to him to spend time with him, I love that song, I come to the garden alone, you know, and you walk in the garden. Uh, does God say, I'm sorry, uh, I'll be with you on Sabbath. Uh, you're going to be on your own all week. <laughs> or does he spend time with you every day if, you, if you're willing to spend time with him? So this idea, these, these arguments, that there's truth that God spends time with us on Sabbath, no question. I'm not saying he doesn't, but it doesn't, it's not what sets the Sabbath apart. Do you see how truths, like God spends time with us on Sabbath, true. Like the Sabbath is time we can use to appreciate our creator. True, true, true. Can you see how these truths, though, can be used to create a false narrative or a false idea? And that's why, then, the Sabbath is holy. No, that's not why it's holy. It is all, it's true, it can be used for this, but that's not why it's holy. Have any of you ever had these, these types of linkages in your head? Taught these things from Bible teachers? Yes, I have too. And some part of me always just was like, takes a while to kind of deprogram ourselves. It almost becomes magical or superstitious. What if we view someone, what, 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 what view might we have of someone who believes that certain objects are holy? crucifixes, pictures, images, or maybe a certain set of bricks or stones built in a certain place in the world, and, and, and that makes them holy, and therefore only certain people can approach, or they can only approach in certain ways, or if they bow or cover their head. Uh, the, we look at that and go, those people have a lot of insight I don't have. And we go, that's fairly superstitious. Does that cause you to want to study more with them when they present stuff like that? Or does it cause you to think, they're pretty, pretty not really understanding reality. I don't think they have much light to share with me. So when we present the Sabbath as similar to these types of holy objects, we don't cause people to go, you've got something I'd like to learn about. We have to have better reasons. Okay, comment. How about argument uh, when God says uh, Sabbath is a sign between me and you? Yeah, that's a good one. And we're going to get there. It's in the notes. Our memory text for today is Mark 2, 27 and 28. And I'm going to read it to you from the remedy. Okay? You can read it any, follow along in any version you like. But this is from the remedy. The Sabbath was created as a gift for hum humanity, to be a blessing for human beings. Human beings were not created as a gift for the Sabbath. Understand this clearly. The Son of Man doesn't serve the Sabbath. It serves him. That's my paraphrase of that verse. Do you think I, I got it wrong there? And then you should think that through. The Sabbath serves God. God, Jesus, Jesus as a human being does not serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath serves him. You weren't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for you. 
So the question is, what does it mean the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath? The commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Genesis and Exodus, Genesis where the Sabbath was made, it was sanctified, it was made holy, created holy, made holy. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. If we were to have lots of wild partying on the Sabbath hours, have we made the Sabbath less holy? No. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. If you have a party on Sabbath, the Sabbath is now diminished. It's not as holy as it was before your party. Yes or no? No. Or is the Sabbath holiness not changed? It's still holy. How about if we go to church and we do righteous activities on Sabbath? Have we made it more holy? No. Or is the holiness of the Sabbath what it is? It is what it is. It's created by God. You and I can't change it. Yes or no? Correct. Correct. Okay. So then remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Are we keeping the Sabbath or are we keeping ourselves holy? The Sabbath is holy. No matter what we do, the Sabbath holiness is holy. You're keeping yourselves holy. Now, can you keep yourself holy one day out of seven? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Get your mind around where I'm going. Now, I'm going to read you a quote out of uh, Desire of Ages. It's one of the founders of the Adventist Church wrote this book. And then get your mind around what this says. It's actually in Friday's lesson. If you have your quarterly, this quote is in the lesson. And you can read it uh, in the lesson and follow along. No other institution which, has, uh, which was committed to the Jews tended to so fully distinguish them from the surrounding nations as did the Sabbath. God designed that its observance should designate them as his worshipers. It was to be a token of their separation from idolatry and their connection with the true God. But in order to keep the Sabbath holy, men must themselves be holy. Through faith, they must become partakers of the righteousness of Christ. That's how the Sabbath was always taught to me growing up, right? Not really. I never really had Sabbath observance connected with partaking of Christ and living holy all week. In fact, it was taught in such a way that your holy living was distinctly different on Sabbath than the rest of the week. It was kind of like a curtain fell. It had its own food. It had its own music. Own food. I mean, everything shifted for those 24 hours. And I remember in my juvenile mind, adolescence, immaturity. Hey, you know what? It's uh, December. (laughs) Praise God. Sabbath is over at 530. (laughs) Counting that clock. We got a long Saturday night. I can go out tonight. Oh, it's it's July. Sabbath doesn't go over till 858 at night. The whole evening's ruined. Am I the only one that had thoughts like, come on. (laughs) It's sad. All that I was missing because of the way it was taught to me. In order to keep the Sabbath holy, men must themselves be holy. Through faith, they must become partakers of the righteousness of Christ. Notice, this is why it was never taught correctly, because I was never taught that we must be partakers of the righteousness of Christ. I was taught penal substitution theology. And penal substitution theology teaches that my righteousness is filthy rags. And that when I accept Jesus as my Savior, he covers me with the perfect robe of his righteousness. And I, in the record books of heaven, am declared to be righteous, even though I'm still unrighteous. My heart is still, I'm an unrighteous, wicked sinner. I'm not righteous. I'm not partaking of righteousness. I'm declared legally righteous. This is what the penal lie teaches people traps them into a penal system of fear. And then, well, I don't want to get another demerit on the books that I'll have to confess. I'll be in trouble. The righteousness only covers the ones I've confessed. If I haven't confessed it yet, then the righteousness hasn't covered it. It hadn't been raced out of the books yet. And you know what? Sabbath, the sunset went down at, at the sun went down at 538, but my TV didn't go off till 539. Sinner. <laughs> <laughs> I better confess that. I better confess that. Right. It's on the books. But I was busy, and I didn't even realize it. And my wife turned it off for me. 
and I never confessed it. It remains on the books against me. It's going to be warm where you're going. (laughs) I remember George Gray's, so close, so close. (laughs) Remember, so close, oh, so close. Just that one he forgot. Can those uh, who have a legal religion, who claim the blood as a legal payment, paying for their sins and the covering of the righteousness, uh, yet don't have a renewed heart, haven't partaken of the righteousness, they're not holy in character, can they actually be Sabbath keepers? No, they're like the Pharisees who crucified Christ. They may have the right day, but they're not keeping Sabbath because in order, this is, according to this author, in order to keep the Sabbath holy, men must themselves be holy, which requires partaking in the heart of the righteousness of Christ. The Sabbath is, is about the Lord of the Sabbath and us resting in him. What does it mean to keep it holy? Oh, man, I'm, I'm way behind. i got so much to share with you guys because I want to get to the whole idea of the sign. As it says in Lift Him Up, Christians will reveal the degree to which they tend to do this to the healthiness of their spiritual character. We must know the practical application of the word in our own individual character building. We are to be holy temples in which God can live and work and dwell. True holiness is wholeness in the service of God. He demands the heart, the mind, the soul, the strength. Why does he demand it? Demand it. Because he's right, because he's sovereign, because he's paid the price, because he's the creator, because he's powerful. No, he demands it. Because he's the source of life, and it's the only way to heal you and restore you. You're free to reject it, but if you do, you sever your connection with the only source of life, and you die. It's the only way. It'd be like your parent demanding that you get your head above water if you want to live. I demand it. You cannot live under there. Get your head above water. I demand it. Well, that's awful demanding of you. When you understand design law, it makes perfect sense. It's the only way life exists in harmony with God's construction for reality. It goes on in the quote, said, He who lives to himself is not a Christian. The true Christians have the character of Christ, which is greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. It's other-centeredness. It's living in the harmony with God's design law. Living to self is survival of the fittest. It's the world system. It's Satan's kingdom. You're not a Christian. You can call yourself, but you're not. You're not Christ-like, which is what Christian really means. Love must be the principle of action. Love is the underlying principle of God's government in heaven and earth, and it must be the foundation of the Christian character. This alone can make and keep him steadfast. This alone can enable him to withstand the temptation. This is the religion of Christ. Anything short of it is a deception. No mere theory of truth or profession of discipleship will save a soul. No mere legal accounting, no mere claiming a blood payment will save a soul. You must have the heart changed. And then I'm going to read this quotation. We're going to take time on this one. And then we're going to go to the sign. And we're going to close on that. In presenting the binding claims of the law, many have failed to portray the infinite love of Christ. Why? Because they've presented the binding claims through imposed law as a system of rule that if you don't keep, then God will punish. They haven't presented them through design laws like the law of respiration. It is a binding claim on your health. If you want to live, you've got to breathe. Those who have so great truths, so weighty reforms to present to the people have not the realization of the value of the atoning sacrifice as an expression of God's great love for man. Love for Jesus and Jesus' love for the sinners have been dropped out of the religious experience of those who have been commissioned to preach the gospel and self has been exalted instead of the redeemer of mankind. The law is to be presented to its transgressors, not as something apart from God, but rather as an exponent of his mind and character. As the sunlight cannot be separated from the sun, so God's law cannot be rightly presented to man apart from the divine author. Pause there in the middle of this quote. Which is closer to the sunlight-sun analogy? An imposed system of rules made up that's enforced by some external authority, or... Design law, how God built reality to run, run, and he continually sustains it through the disbursement of his own life-giving energy to continue all things operating in harmony with himself. The messenger should be able 
to say, in the law is God's will. Come, see for yourself that the law is what Paul declared it to be, holy, just, and good. It reproves sin. It condemns the sinner. But it shows him the need of Christ, with whom is plenteous mercy and goodness and truth. Though the law cannot remit the penalty for sin, but charges the sinner with all its, his debt, Christ has promised abundant pardon to all who repent and believe in his mercy. Does that sound designed or does that sound penal legal? How do you wonder? When you read this stuff, first, first question, what's the first thing you do? What law lens am I looking through? What law lens? The law cannot remit the penalty of sin. Are you so conditioned that you immediately, you see, you've got to enforce it. The judge can't just give you a quick blink and let you go. He's got he's to hold you accountable. Or do you think, can the laws of health remit the penalty of drinking poison? You drank poison, can the laws of health remit the penalty? Or will the laws of health enforce the penalty if you drink poison? Do you understand what I mean by the laws of health? If you drink poison, a toxin... There are physical laws in operation going on in your body on all different levels, chemical, biological laws that are now, you're out of harmony with life and health. And there are damaging consequences coming. Those laws are not changing. You have drank poison. You're violating those laws. The laws will not remit the penalty. You will die if you drink poison. That's the penalty. You drank the poison. That's what the laws diagnose. That's the penalty they prescribe. And there's no way out for you from the law. Everybody with me? That's what the law demands, yes. There's no way out from that. The laws of health cannot remit the... But what can remit the penalty of drinking poison? If you get that before you die. An antidote. An antidote. A remedy. A remedy. A cure. That neutralizes the poison, that restores your body and systems back to design law, to the laws of health, that puts you back in harmony with the laws of health. That can remit the penalty. Thus, the laws don't change. The lawgiver who created the universe and the laws of health, he doesn't change and he doesn't get appeased and he doesn't get paid off and he doesn't get bribed with the blood of an innocent sacrifice. No, what changes is the one who drank poison receives an antidote that restores that person back to harmony with the law. That's where the change happens. That's where we get new hearts and right spirits. We're reborn. The law is written in the heart and mind. The heart of stone is removed and a tender heart is put in. We are regenerated. We have circumcision of the heart by the spirit. All the metaphors of scripture have the action happening in the believer. As the law of God is restored in the believer, restoring or resetting us back in harmony with the law. So what does charge the sinner with all his debt mean? It simply means that the law accurately diagnoses you as terminal. You are dead in trespass and sin. You're going to die unless you take the remedy freely offered by Christ. And when you do, you get a new heart and right spirit. Continuing on with the quote. The love of God is extended in abundance to the repenting, believing soul. The brand, the brand, as in a cattle brand, the brand of sin upon the soul can be effaced, removed, effaced, written over, expunged, only through the blood of the atoning sacrifice. What does it mean? That's a brand. What is a brand? It's a mark, a scar. Getting into marks and signs here soon, okay? It's a mark, it's a scar, it's a searing uh, that sin does. Sin, fear and selfishness, marks our characters, sears our minds, warps us in the inner person to become more like Satan and less like Christ. That mark, that warp, that distortion where we see the world through the lens of survival drive, me first, it's right to hurt others before you get hurt. That whole warping of our character is only erased or effaced 
through the blood of Christ. Blood is a metaphor. The Bible says the life is in the blood. In this case, it's the blood of Christ. So the life of Christ is in the blood. It's a metaphor. If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. So as we partake of Christ, then the selfishness is effaced and selfless love is restored in, and we get a new life in Christ. That's the only mechanism to get rid of the brand, the scarring, the searing that happens from fear and selfishness in our character. Again, nothing penal legal. It's transformational. Keep going with the quote. No less an offering was required than the sacrifice of him who was equal with the father. Why do we have to have one who was equal with the father? Because the allegations and lies were about God. They were not about angels. If an angel comes and sacrifices himself and dies in love for us, we learn that angels love us or that angel loved us. But the issue was not whether an angel loved us. We learned an angel could sacrifice. Wasn't that. It was whether God would sacrifice. It wasn't whether we would trust our life to an angel. It was whether we would trust our life to God. Only God could restore trust in God. An angel couldn't do that. No one less than God could, everybody with me on that. And only the creator who built life could, and is the author of his design laws, could, as a human, perfectly restore those design laws that he wrote into the human, which he did. So one equal to God had to come. The work of Christ, his life, humiliation, death, and intercession for the law, for lost man magnifies the law, makes it honorable by showing that the law of God, the law of love, perfectly lived out, is the law of life. Get your mind. This is how Jesus was able to say to his apostles over and over, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, be handed over, going to be tried, going to be killed, and I will rise on the third day. Did he say it just once? Multiple times he said it, right? Ellen White, you will know, she writes in Zara of Ages, 753, that Christ could not see through the portals of the tomb. If you believe her words... How is it that Christ was constantly able to tell his apostles what was going to happen? So what she is saying, and this is where people get confused because they read the Bible. Well, you can't trust Ellen White because clearly he could because he told him over and over again he was going to rise again. And she says he couldn't see through the portals of the tomb. No, this is where people confuse issues. Seeing through portals of the tomb means having a prophetic vision, being shown the future like Daniel was shown the future of nations. Prophecy, seeing through the lens of God who lives outside of time. Christ was not giving a, given a prophetic view as a human being on earth. He didn't see uh, through uh, divine intervention the future. What he saw and knew was God's design laws. And because he knew God's design laws and he knew his mission and he knew what he was going to achieve, he could predict accurately the outcome. Just as I can predict with great accuracy what will happen when I let go of this. When I let go of this, it will fall. That's a future event that I can predict quite accurately because I know the law of gravity. And he knew the law of love was the law that life was built upon. And when he eradicated the infection that tempted him from within and restored perfectly God's love, he said, I will go, I'll be tempted. I will suffer at the hands of men. I will die and I will rise again. Because I will restore God's law of love into my humanity. Okay, we got to jump ahead. Boy, I, we just finished Sunday's lesson, but we're going to get to the sign question. And uh, so, I know I'm running late. We're already two minutes over. Um, so, let's see. So I think it's in Monday's lesson, actually. So the Sabbath was created as a day invested by God with time to uh, understand the origins of the Sabbath. How did it originate? As a day set apart from the other days. Day one through six, work days by God. God creates. God uses power. God expends energy. God creates. Day seven, God rests. So this day is set apart by God in its construction, in its creation, in its design. Okay, It is built differently, and in the context of the great controversy, it reveals something. Day one through six, we learn God is powerful. Important power. But day seven, we learn the character of the one who wields the power. 
that he is not abusive, he's not coercive, he won't force people to do it his way. He gives truth all week long. He's revealing truth of who he is and how, not just that he's creating, but that he's creating uh, a, a world teeming with life. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 9, it's a theater, a spectacle to angels, to men, a world in which all the systems operate on his design laws of love, and he shares power, procreative power with the new creation, dominion to govern with the new creation. He is not selfish. He's not hoarding of power. He gives away. We're learning of his character, truth presented in love, a system's designed to operate in love, and then the Sabbath. He leaves his intelligence free. The day of freedom. Think it through for yourself. Rest my case. No pressure from me. Come to your own conclusion. And every seven days now, the entire universe, because this earth where Christ came, becomes the center. You understand, after it's all done, God moves his throne here. This earth, with its rotation to that sun, and a Sabbath every seven days for all eternity, will be memorialized. Truth presented in love. So, if God were the kind of person Satan alleges him to be, a coercive abuser of power who forces his way, would there be a Sabbath in existence? No. Its existence is evidence that Satan lied. It's evidence of the character of the one who wields the power, that we can trust him. And it was reaffirmed in many other stories through Scripture, ultimately at the cross, reaffirmed again, over and over and again, invested with more evidence, truth, presented in love, leaving free, never using coercive power. Thus the Sabbath is created as evidence of God's character of love and becomes a sign, sign, a flag, a pennant, a mark of his kingdom that runs on truth, love, and freedom. Sunday became a day of worship in a different way. How did Sunday become a day of worship? And it did, but how? By vote. By vote or legislation. Therefore, Sunday becomes a mark or a sign or a flag of imperialism, human governments, beastly systems, coercion, rules you must keep. And you see in the Dark Ages, that's how the Dark Ages church operated. You obey the Dark Ages church or you will be put to the stake. You will be, you will ha- have an inquisition against you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Coercion, power over versus truth, love, freedom. So the two days become two marks or signs. We have the U.S. flag right back here. That flag is a sign of the government of the United States. That flag is not the government of the United States. It's a sign. It's all. It's a mark, a symbol. The Sabbath and the Sunday are not the governments. They're simply marks or representations of those governments. That's what they are. And people can wear that flag, and they have done it in military conflicts while they worked against the country. And people can observe the Sabbath of the Lord of Freedom while they practice the methods of coercion. And thus they are practicing the system of the beasts. They're infiltrators. They're the ones who crucified the Lord of the Sabbath. People can keep or go to church on Sunday while they practice the principles of liberty, freedom, and truth. It is not about the days. It is about the two governments and ultimately the gods of the two governments. One God is the creator God, truth, love, and liberty. The other God is the imposter, Satan, who is coercive and imperialistic and uses law to p- over people and uses power to punish lawbreakers. And that's what the two systems represent. And that's what it will ultimately come down to in the end. Whether it is ultimately a world government that passes a legislation that requires worship on a certain day, it could look like that. It does not have to. Those two days still represent those two systems, whether the days themselves are ultimately brought to bear as a test or not. You will be put in a position where you will be pressured to participate in a world system that will coerce others or practice truth in love, leave people free. That will be the big deal. These two days still symbolize those things, but they may not be the ultimate test for every person. It might actually be something that seems so much more reasonable to you. Like wearing a mask or not associating with people in public because of a virus that 99.8% of people get over. 
are saving the earth. Get your mind around that. 99.778% of people recover from this virus, but yet people want 100% of people to be governed or controlled by rules that have essentially no impact or benefit to them. Take away liberty. Take away autonomy. Don't present truth and love. Let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. Present the facts, evidence. Let autonomous people make judgments about what what is best for them. I will tell you, I have an 87-year-old father-in-law who was widowed this year who would rather die than be isolated in an apartment by himself. But there are people who would rather tell him that he has no right to socialize and get out and visit with people that are sustenance to his soul, that keep him going. They would rather force him based on this small risk of this virus, but he would rather get the virus and die at 87 than to be isolated by himself in an apartment where he can't visit the people he loves. And it's so presumptuous. I would never, let me make this very clear. I'm not on the other, I am not suggesting that we should force people to get out and socialize, or we should prohibit people from staying home if that's what they think in their life is best for them. Do it, please, by all means. But the issue of Christ and the methods of Christ and the systems that the Sabbath represent truly is truth presented in love, leaving people free. And any time we start beginning using government to intrude into personal space and lives and coerce people to conform to what you think is right for their life, you are moving out of Sabbath keeping into beastly systems. And you should be warned. Our gracious Father in heaven, we see the movements afoot in this earth today that are designed to incite fear. And fear and love are inversely proportional, Lord. We want your truth and we want your love to be dominant in our hearts. We want to be effective agents to take your kingdom and the beauty of what the Sabbath truly represents to this world to help free hearts and minds from the fear and the control and the manipulation that is so powerful in the world today that people can find peace in their relationship with you and knowing that your agencies are watching over and they're safe in your hands, regardless of this mortal life, that we have security with an eternal life with you. We pray that you will empower and open avenues that we can take this message out so that people can be aware of it and make an informed choice to give their hearts to you and practice your methods. We pray in your holy name. Amen.